Welcome to the Virginia Hospital and Healthcare Association's Patients Come First podcast series, which can be heard on VHHA.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get podcasts. We're also a member of the Public Health Podcast Network, the Virginia Audio Collective, and the Family Podcast Network. And we're on the radio each Saturday at noon and Sunday at 10 a.m. on 100.5 FM, 92.7 FM, 107.7 FM, and 8.20 a.m. across Central Virginia, and 1650 a.m. in Hampton Roads, and Wednesdays at 1 p.m. on 93.9 FM in Richmond. I'm Selena Lore with VHHA, and today we're glad to be joined by Dr. Reddy Rose, Director of the Virginia Poison Center, for a conversation about the work of the center, its mission, and more. With that, welcome to the program, Dr. Rose. Thanks for being with us. Thank you. Happy to have you here. So if we can, let's start with some level setting on the role of poison control centers. As I understand it, there are 55 such centers across the U.S., three of which serve Virginians, one based at VCU in Richmond, where you serve, another at UVA in Charlottesville, and another in Washington, D.C. These centers operate toll-free numbers that are staffed 24-7 with trained professionals who can provide advice and guidance on poisonings from narcotics, prescription drugs, household chemicals, gases and fumes, and even toxic bites from wildlife. With that bit of context, could you please provide an overview of the Virginia Poison Control Center and its functions? Well, thank you, Selena. That was was an excellent summary. Yes, we are one of 55 centers, and these are are centers that are accredited through the American Association of Poison Control Centers. So all the centers that serve Virginia, certainly including ours at VCU, have gone through a fairly rigorous accreditation process. And that's why we only have 55 in the country, because these centers take thousands of calls and have, you know, a lot of expertise immediately available to callers and have toxicologists also available to to consult with physicians. So these are very comprehensive centers that operate at a very high level. And so we're, we're very proud to be able to offer that service. And VCU has been doing this since 1958. And as I understand it, the Virginia Poison Control Center serves portions of Central Virginia, Hampton Roads, and Southside Virginia, which is a region of about 3.2 million people that contains 48 acute care hospitals and urgent care centers. The center receives thousands of calls each year, and about half of those calls involve young children. If you would, walk us through the process of what happens when a call comes into the center. Certainly. So poison centers were originally designed to serve the public, and this largely came out of pediatric exposures. So years and years ago, products that were intended for the home compared to today were quite hazardous, were not very well labeled and poorly packaged. And so this would include household chemicals. It would also include medications. For example, you know, bottles of a 1,000 aspirin tablets that were in a container without a child-resistant cap. And so children were getting into products in the home, and doctors really had nowhere to turn. And that's really how poison centers evolved out of pediatrics. And so what would happen is if you call the poison center, the nurse on the phone, typically this could be a nurse with specialized training, as you pointed out, is going to take a history of what happened. So we want to know, you know, sort of the baseline health of the person or child. We really want to know, you know, what they got hold of, how much, if that can be determined, certainly how old they are, when it happened. We certainly want to know why it happened. We don't try to manage any cases at home where someone's intended to hurt themselves. So if, if there's any attempt at self-harm, we want to do our best to make sure that person gets a medical evaluation. But otherwise, we get a history of that exposure, and we, we have a lot of resources to look at different drugs and chemicals, and, and we make a determination of whether any additional medical care would be needed or not. So it's really a very high-level triage 
uh, taking a history of what happened, assessing any signs or symptoms if they have any, and then making a determination whether we can safely manage that person at home, whether we need to refer them to a healthcare facility. Do you wish you could focus on practicing medicine without all the distractions? Covaris is here to help. As a leader in medical professional liability insurance with more than 45 years experience, Covaris provides insurance protection with data-driven predictive modeling to help you mitigate the risk of claims. By combining insurance protection with risk analytic services, you can reduce distractions and focus on improving clinical, operational, and financial outcomes. Covaris is reinventing what you should expect from your medical professional liability provider. Find out all Covaris can offer you at Covaris.com. That's C-O-V-E-R-Y-S.com. Insurance products issued by Medical Professional Mutual Insurance Company and its insurance subsidiaries, Boston, Massachusetts. A moment ago, we referenced your work with hospitals and other healthcare providers, and you brought that up as well. From what I gather, about a quarter of your calls do come from healthcare professionals who are treating people who have been poisoned. Could you share some of the stats from the center in terms of the most common calls you receive in terms of types of poisonings? Certainly. Well, traditionally, about 85% or 80% of calls came from homes and 10 to 15% from hospitals. Now it's closer to 25 or 30% from hospitals. And that might be because of the internet and a lot of the phone calls that we receive. People can get information on the internet. But we're receiving far more calls from hospitals throughout Virginia with much sicker patients. And, you know, unfortunately, they're getting into sometimes illicit drugs or drugs that are more dangerous. And so we have you know, quite a few calls coming in from emergency departments in particular about people quite sick. Sometimes they know what they've taken, but many times they don't. And so for hospitalized patients, we see drugs from basically any category. They can certainly be over-the-counter medicines like acetaminophen or aspirin or ibuprofen or antihistamines or uh, cough medicine. We see prescription drugs that are used to treat depression, to treat different types of mental health disorders. We see drugs used to treat the cardiovascular system, to treat blood pressure and heart rate. We see drugs used to treat seizures. So if you really look at the drugs that are most commonly prescribed and taken by patients, those are the ones that we're going to see most commonly in an overdose setting. Those are the hospital cases. And the cases at home are going to be home products. So again, we're talking about over-the-counter medications, like I mentioned before, within household products like cleaning substances or cosmetics and personal care products, sometimes insecticides or pesticides, and all types of products that are found around the home because that's where most exposures occur. During the COVID-19 pandemic, there's been some indication that the use of chemical disinfectants to clean services, as well as an increased use of hand sanitizer, has contributed to an increase in accidental poisonings and a surge in calls to poison centers across the nation. In your experience, have you seen these trends manifested in Virginia? Yes, we certainly have. So the hygiene part of wearing a mask and keeping six feet away, and then in particular, frequently washing your hands, has resulted in more cleaning household, uh, more cleaning products, both to clean the home and to clean yourself. So cleaning products like bleach and hand sanitizer are certainly out and being used far more frequently since the pandemic. That results in two things. One, it results in, in people 
misusing those, usually accidentally, but sometimes they might use them to an extreme, either because they're worried in particular about COVID-19 or they're at risk and are really more worried about contracting the illness, and also to young children because these products are now out being used and they're within their sight and within their reach. So we've seen an increase in both types of calls, some unfortunate or inappropriate use in adults and then unintentional exposures in children. A few months ago, I remember reading about a man that was bitten by his pet snake, an African pit viper, which is among the most venomous snakes in the world. The bite was treated with anti-venom from the National Zoo in Washington, D.C., and a second dose was delivered by a state trooper from the Virginia Beach Aquarium. In that situation, the Virginia Poison Control Center helped identify and locate the life-saving anti-venom. How common are these kinds of situations, and what initial home interventions are recommended when someone is exposed to a venomous bite in nature? Most snake bites are going to be from native venomous snakes, and in Virginia, that's going to be primarily a copperhead snake. It could also be a water moccasin or a rattlesnake. So most snakes are non-venomous, so the, the chances, if you do get uh, have an encounter with a snake, it, it's the odds are it'll be non-venomous. If it is venomous, uh, which you can identify by certainly having fangs and some other markings of the snake, like elliptical pupils and a triangular head, those types of bites, we don't recommend a whole lot of first aid other than cleaning the wound and keeping it elevated and calling the poison center for advice. In some of those cases, you might not need a trip to the hospital. Some of those bites, the snake won't even inject any venom. And then in other cases, uh, whatever is bitten your hand or foot typically will begin to swell up and become quite painful. And, and that typically is what then drives the person to the emergency department. For decades, most of the bites with exotic or snakes not native to the United States happened really only in zoos and happened with a zookeeper who would be would be an occupational hazard. But over the the past 20 years or so, we've seen, a I think, a, a marked increase in the number of people who keep exotic snakes in captivity in their homes, and that certainly has increased the risk of a bite from one of these you know, highly poisonous snakes. So I've been at, back at, at DCU about 25 years now, and I've seen five or six at least exotic snake bites. And that's really one of the benefits of the Poison Center. One is that you know, we have resources that we can help identify the snake if the identity is not specifically known, and then identify the appropriate antivenin in it and help it get mobilized to get to the patient's bedside. And then we have toxicologists on faculty, and that is our training and our expertise is to assist physicians in helping to manage these cases, and particularly with the appropriate use of the antivenom. And so that's it's sort of a twofold mission, but certainly a team effort on behalf of everybody that's at the Poison Center. So I think in, in both home care and in hospital care, Poison centers and toxicologists are very cost-effective services. We, we're not, we don't make money for anybody, but we save money for a lot of people. And I've also heard that, at least nationally, calls to poison control centers regarding children who have ingested cannabis edibles have also been on the rise in recent years. Is this a trend you've observed in Virginia? Yes, unfortunately, that's true. So again, once you have products that are legal, that's going to increase their presence in people's homes. So while there's been marijuana in people's homes for decades, clearly, the plant material is not that attractive to children. But when you market marijuana-type products in products that look like candy or gummies, then that certainly increases the likelihood that children would be attracted to them and, and want to eat them. So we have seen that trend of increasing pediatric exposures to cannabis-type products. And unfortunately, it seems to be 
far more harmful in children than it is in adults. And some of these products are quite concentrated so that children can get a very high dose. We are concerned with the proliferation of these products, the strength of these products, and the fact that they're marketed in forms that are attractive to children. Well, thank you, Dr. Rose, for sharing your expertise. In the name of full disclosure, I can share that I once had to call the Virginia Poison Control Center for help uh, when my roommate mixed several cleaning products together after watching a TikTok video about it. When the concoction filled our apartment with some nasty fumes, we thankfully had enough presence of mind to call poison control. I can tell you the person that we spoke to was super helpful, reassuring, and helped us to stay calm. So I can say from my own personal experience that it's a valuable resource. And if anybody that's listening needs to contact the Virginia Virginia Poison Center, the toll-free number is 800-222-1222. Again, that's 800-222-1222. The number also works for people outside of Virginia. And before we conclude, it's a tradition on our podcast to ask guests a pair of fun personal questions. To keep things interesting, we've got a list of 10 mystery questions to choose from. So if you could please pick two numbers between 1 and 10, I'll ask you the corresponding questions. All right, let's start with four. Number four, which, if any of the following things, do you consider to be the most plausible? Bigfoot, Yeti, the Loch Ness Monster, the Jersey Devil, or UFOs and aliens? If none of those apply, but you believe in something else along those lines, please share it. Oh, I guess I'm going to have to go with the Loch Ness Monster. I guess my family's Scottish roots, and I've, I've seen enough pictures of something in Loch Ness Lake that seems unusual. So while maybe UFOs were a close second, I'll, I'll have to go with Nessie. Gotcha. Thank you. And the second number? How about eight? Number eight. Tell me one memory from your life that whenever you think of it, it makes you smile. Oh, I'm going to have to say memories of my father. My, my father passed away when I was 17, so an awful long time ago. So I have just great memories of spending a grown-up time with him. And so I, I would say memory, memories of my father and my mother's gone too, but, but I would say that's probably the, that always brings a smile. Yeah, thank you for sharing that with us. And thank you again for being on our show. And that'll bring us to the close of another episode of the Virginia Hospital and Healthcare Association's Patients Come First podcast. If you like what you heard, please make sure to leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and subscribe so you know when new episodes are released. And we want to once again thank our guest, Dr. Ruddy Rose, for joining us today. So thank you. Thank you. It was a pleasure to be with you.